So as we've been walking through uh, Mark's account of the life of Christ, my hope is that you have been given an insight into the God that we worship. As we come into contact with Jesus week after week, my hope is that our worship is becoming more true and our prayer lives are becoming more, more alive as we engage with this Jesus that we are reading about. And and that's why, I'm sh- why, why we're reading through Mark. That's why I'm sharing what I'm sharing, is so that you can go out of these doors and uh, throughout the rest of the week that uh, you can interact with and talk with this Jesus that you've been hearing about on a Sunday. And my, and my hope and my prayer is that, is that these messages are igniting sparks of faith within you And that you're starting to think, well, maybe what he has been doing in the pages of Mark, maybe he can also do the same in my life and in the lives of my loved ones. That's my prayer. And I hope that that the fires of your imagination are being stoked and that Jesus is becoming more and more fleshed out in your minds. And I hope that you that when you when you pray, that when you talk with Jesus, that you are communicating with him like he's a person. Um, and I hope that when you come to him uh, for repentance um, after you've sinned, that it's not just religiously motivated, but it's relationally motivated as if Jesus was a real person. Why do I hope that? Because Jesus is a real, real person. And Mark is laying in front of us a real Jesus. He's a real human Jesus. And yes, he is God, but he's not a spiritual specter. He's not a nice ideal. He's a real human. And this real human Jesus can listen to your stories and he has time to answer questions that you might think are stupid. And this real Jesus wants to walk with you as you go throughout your day. And I hope, or, and I also hope, these are lots of hopes, but these are all of my hopes, is that you're taking some of these key verses that we're reading in Mark and that you're starting to thread them into your prayer life. And I hope that some of you have already memorized Mark chapter 10, verse 45, and that you're regularly thanking Jesus that he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And as you add more and more understanding to your walk with Jesus week after week, um, this is where maturity happens. This is where depth of relationship happens. This is where you actually become more like Jesus, not like a religious ideal. No one wants to become more like a religious ideal. I'm not interested in that. I hope that you're not interested in that either, but that you become more like Jesus as a person, the person Jesus Christ. Like you've already heard, I'm flying back to Wales for my mum's 60th birthday, and I'm super excited because when I get to Wales, I'll see my family, I'll see my parents, I'll see my two brothers and my sister, I'll see my nieces, I'll see my grandparents, I'll see, my, my, I'll see the dog of my parents. Um, but it's not only the people and the animals, I'm also excited about walking along the seafront near to my parents' house and smelling 
the sea. I'm excited about sitting down at Joe's ice cream parlor in Swansea and eating literally the best ice cream in the world. And that has been voted, that has been officially voted by me and anyone else who has ever eaten there. And I'm excited to walk through the streets of Neath and Swansea and maybe go to Singleton Park. And even though I've not lived there for 15 years, it's still home. And I'll probably drive by my, 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 my high school um, and I'll look at it and remember what happened there, some of the good things and the bad things. Um, and I also look forward to paying the actual price of the goods and not having to mentally calculate HST on top of whatever I'm purchasing. And I look forward to holding a 20 pound note and being surprised at how big it is compared to Canadian money. I'm looking forward to eating fish and chips in a pub and, uh, and not having to ask for HP sauce because they know that if you're eating in a pub that they bring you brown sauce along with the red sauce automatically. You don't have to specially ask for it. And I look forward to seeing someone in the street and saying to them, all right, and then they will look at me and they will say to me in response, all right, okay, because that is the right thing to say. And I, I look forward to hearing the Welsh cadence. I look forward to going for a walk in the Brecon Beacons. I look forward to listening to BBC Radio. To, I look forward to driving on the left. And, but all in all, what that means is that I'm looking forward to home. And if you've ever been away from home, even just for a holiday, then you know what I mean. You know that at home things make sense. At home you can relax. At home you can be you. And in Mark chapter 6, after a lengthy time away, Jesus is going home. Let's turn to Mark chapter 6 verse 1. And... Uh, while we turn there, if you just go back to that last slide, Anne. So last week we found or we learned that we find exactly what we need at the feet of Jesus. And this week we are going to learn this, that, that the person who lives a life of unbelief will never know what they're missing, okay? The person who lives a life of unbelief will never know what they're missing. Let's, let's, let's read Mark chapter 6, verse 1, which says this. Jesus left there and went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples. And so Jesus leaves the shores of the Sea of Galilee. He leaves his ministry base over there in Capernaum, and he heads inland to Nazareth. So he heads inland and he heads up. So he's kind of going through some hilly, mountainous area. And he has his crew with him. And as far as we know, none of the disciples are from Nazareth. So this will be their first time visiting Jesus's home village. Now, they probably wouldn't have heard of Nazareth, but they would have heard of the capital of the region that was just three and a half miles away, a place called Sephoris. N Nazareth is to Sephoris like North Gore is to Barhaven, okay? It's kind of small, and unless you're from there or you know someone there, you, you probably wouldn't have heard of it, or unless you drive there through there on the way to Smith Falls or something like that, you know? But so, so it was a small place, insignificant. Verse 2, when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Now, the visit starts off really well. Next Sunday, 
I'm being, uh, I have been invited to preach in my home church, Lonlas Mission. And Jesus was invited to do the same. As a visiting rabbi, he would have been invited to come and speak. And in fact, for a, for a, for a little village like Nazareth, it would have been exciting to know that this famous teacher um, who had been doing heaps of miracles was in their neighborhood. So if you can imagine if, I don't know who you enjoy um, listening to, but if you can imagine Joel Osteen or Andy Stanley or Rick Warren or John Piper was staying in North Gore, and they were coming to preach at Cornerstone Wesleyan Church. This church would be packed much more than if Pastor Dan was here. Because it's exciting. Uh, and he's a big name. And so he's there preaching. And his talk, his preaching is resonating. He's really connecting with the local folks. Um, Mark actually doesn't tell us what he said. But we know that it was really good. It was really good. Uh, it says, in fact, that people were amazed. No one has ever come up to me after a message that I've preached and said, Dan, I'm amazed by what you just said. It just blew my mind. Okay, and I know after this sermon, some of you are going to come up and say to me, Dan. <laughs> so let me preempt that. But, uh, but when Jesus preached, people were amazed. Verse 2. Uh, where did this man get these things, they asked. What is this wisdom that, ha that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles that he is, he is performing? Folks started talking among themselves. They start asking all of the right questions. These are the right questions. Uh, Stuart, Stuart Briscoe says this, until these questions are asked, these questions in verse 2, until these questions are asked, there is no faith. Is Jesus human or is he actually divine? Are his words human philosophy or are they eternal truth? Is his power to work miracles? Is it natural or is it from God? These are the questions that have to be asked in order for faith to happen. And so I hope that you're asking these questions on a Sunday morning. I, I hope that as I unpack the word of God for you, I hope that you're not lapping it up like a cat with a bowl of milk. Instead, I hope that you're chewing it over, asking the right questions and the good questions, because the book that I'm preaching from, it does not claim to be a nice little add-on. It, it claims to be the inspired Word of God that's useful in all situations. And something with such lofty claims like that cannot just be lapped up like a cat lapping milk. It needs to be examined. It needs to be looked at. It needs to be tested. It needs to be tried. And the God that it's revealing isn't just one option among many. He's, he's never, he never says in there that he's just an, an, a nice little thing that you can add on you know, to the rest of your life when you have some time. You know, The God that it reveals actually says that there's only one way to him, and it's through his son, Jesus Christ. And so we have to be really diligent in examining scriptures and asking good, honest things of it, asking good, honest questions of it, questions like, where did this man get these things? What's this wisdom that has been given him? And what are these remarkable miracles that he is performing? Let's carry on. Verse 3, isn't this 
the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters with us, here with us? And it's at this moment that we realize that that there's a bit of a problem, and this problem's starting to be exposed. You see, they'd heard about this miracle-working rabbi. They'd heard him speak, and they were amazed. But then, as they were there, in started creeping the cynicism and the skepticism. They were saying to each other, hold on a sec. We know this guy. One, One lady might have said, I changed his nappy when he was a baby. And one man said, I used to play hide and seek with him, but he always seemed to know where I was hiding. And someone says, isn't this the carpenter? He worked on my house. And laced in with that question is unbelief. Surely almighty God, Yahweh himself, would not choose to work through a guy who put up my deck last summer. And so in spite of all that they've been hearing, in spite of the miracles and the healings and the storm on the lake and crazy Dave over in the Gadarenes and the woman who was cured of her menstrual bleeding for 12 years and Jairus' daughter who was raised from the dead, in spite of all of this, all that they can see is the nail hammerer. All they can see is Mary's son. Mary, who as far as they were concerned, had extra marital sex with Joseph 30 years ago, And so Jesus is the product of a scandal. All that they can see is the brother of James and Joseph, of Judah, of Judas and Simon. They they look at Jesus' sisters, and they think that they know him. And in their minds, they're probably thinking, my God doesn't work like this. My God, he doesn't work through people that I know that I grew up with people with names and families and jobs, people who used to live across the street from me. Familiarity has bred contempt. And so in spite of all of the evidence that Jesus is who he says he is, they are blinded by the mundaneness and the earthiness of his humanity. He can't be the Christ because... He's Jesus. Verse 3. And they took offense at him. They took offense at him. In spite of this amazing content of the message, they can't seem to get past the wrapping and the packaging. It's like someone refusing to accept a gift of $1 million because it's been rolled up in a packet of empty Pringles. How dare you give me this gift in a packet of Pringles? But I'm giving you $1 million. But it's in a Pringles packet. People give amounts this large in a briefcase with handcuffs on it. Not in a Pringles packet. I don't want it. No, thank you very much. And so these people didn't just say no. They took offense at him. And so I can imagine Jesus surrounded by, uh, by, by his close followers looking with unbelief at the unbelief in these people's eyes there in the synagogue. And he says this in verse 4. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown, in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own home. And this brings to mind Second uh, Chronicles chapter 36, verse 15, <clears throat> that says this, the, the Lord... 
the God of their ancestors, sent word to them through his messengers again and again because he had, he, he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, they despised his words, and they scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. There was a consequence to this lack of faith in Mark chapter 6. And what was this consequence? Verse 5. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. Last week, we had the opportunity for folks here to be prayed for, for healing and for other things. And it's exciting and a little bit scary when we allow God the space to work in our lives. And, you know... And there's that chance, there's that, there's that wondering, is God able to do something miraculous? But here we learn that if we cannot get past the contempt for the way that God works, then we will never experience these things. If we cannot even see the chance or the possibility that God might choose to work outside of the narrow confines that we've created for him, then our miracleless life becomes a self fulfilling prophecy. If we don't expect Jesus ever to do anything, if we're not praying in faith, then we will get exactly what we pray for. We will get a big, fat nothing every single time. You know, this is a warning. Verse 6 is a warning. But, you know, the question is, why is it that God cannot work in that situation? In these circumstances, in verse 6, why is it that it says that Jesus, in, in, in verse 5, why does it say that he could not do any miracles there except for a few things? Why is that? Why is it that Jesus who cast out demons and who stilled storms and who healed 12-year-long incurable sicknesses, why could he hardly do anything now? The reason is because he's the servant king. And servants don't force people to do stuff. Yes, he's the king. He's sovereign. Yes, he can do anything that he wants to that's in line with his character. That never changes. This is the God who created the, who created the universe. So he can literally do anything that he wants. He's the only true free being in the entire universe. So yes, he is the king, but he's also the servant for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so as a servant, he does not come throwing his weight of glory around. He comes to serve. He gives us the option to trust him or not, to let him serve us or not, to really believe in him or not. And so when we live lives of unbelief, we are, in effect, saying to Jesus, we're saying to God, it's not you, it's me. When we live lives of, of unbelief, we're saying to God, it's not you, it's me, I'm the problem. And so for those who slam the door of unbelief in Jesus' face, he does not force it open. He does not say to us, well, whether you like it or not, I'm going to do this, so move aside, I've got things to do. <clears throat> no, instead, he graciously backs away from the door and says, fair enough, I respect your choice. I respect your free will. And so the miracles don't happen, and the healings don't happen simply because of the lack of faith. You see, lack of faith acts like a force field, and it's, it somehow stops 
the almighty power of God, the infinite power of God. It stops the infinite power of God working on our lives. Lack of faith is like an umbrella that saves us and protects us from getting soaked by the blessings of God. And the sad thing is that for someone who slammed the door of unbelief in in Jesus' face, for that person who has said to him, no, you can't do these things in my life, all that they're left with for the rest of their lives is a cynical, see, I told you so. Jesus can't do anything. He can't help me. I knew I was right all along. Our suspicions get, get confirmed. And our lack of faith means that Jesus, the servant king, cannot work in that situation, which then leads to a further entrenched lack of faith because we see what we expect to see. And when we keep seeing what we expect to see, that cycle goes on and on. We see what what we expect to see over and over again. Last week, I said that we will find exactly what we need at the feet of Jesus unless we refuse to kneel in front of him. Then then we will not find what we need at the feet of Jesus because we're not at the feet of Jesus. We will not find what we need by keeping Jesus at arm's length. We will not find what we need by lingering at the edge of the crowd. We will only find what we need at the feet of Jesus. Verse 6, he was amazed at their lack of faith. Now, for the person who lives by faith, the faith that is exercised leads to more faith that when it is exercised leads to more faith. That faith increases and increases and increases. Now, I know retired missionaries here in the city, in this city, who've had a house literally given to them for free, and they didn't ask for it. They are living a life of faith. Now, that's not to say, you know, that we just have to walk up to God and he's a vending machine, you know, that's, that's not what I'm saying, but, but they're living this lifestyle where they've exercised faith and they've seen it and that just keeps on increasing and increasing, increasing. So, when they shared with me that they had a house for free, well, like here, like here in Mark 6, I was amazed. That kind of thing happens, really, but when I heard it, I started thinking, well, if, if they can get a free house, you know, and they're serving God, there's, and there's no way that they would have been able to pay for it themselves, then how is God wanting to meet my needs that I'm not expecting? And so I never ask. And yet for the person who chooses not to live by faith, but instead refuses to allow Jesus to do in their lives what only he can do, Their lack of faith leads to a shriveling of the soul that has less room for faith that leads to an even more shriveled soul which has even less room for faith and so on and on it goes a bit like the Grinch until all that is left is a husk, a cynical husk that rejoices in its sensible conclusion that see Jesus can't do anything, I told you so. But all that they're really saying is, Jesus can't break down the door of my, 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 my unbelief. And if this is you, then you're absolutely right. Jesus can't, and he won't. 
You see, the, the person who consistently exercises their unbelief will never know what they're missing. They will literally never know what they're missing. This is the sad truth. And so what happens then? What happens to you know, the, you know, the town or the village or the community that refuses Jesus? Well, he leaves, he goes elsewhere, he walks away. Verse 6 again. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. Only after Nazareth had rejected him did he leave. He leaves his hometown because of the lack of faith. He's wasting his time there, and sadly, he never went back. This is the last time he was at his hometown until he died. They would never see him again. But Jesus, he doesn't go into a funk. He doesn't, you know, dwell in the land of unhealthy introspection. He doesn't waste time wondering why his own friends and neighbors are treating him with contempt. He still has a mission. He still has a purpose that allows him to transcend this setback. He still knows that he has come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so he moves on ready to serve others who want to be served. And this is where it gets exciting. Because he doesn't just not quit. Instead, he ups the ante. He intensifies his mission. Verse 7, it says, calling the 12 to him, he began to send them, send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over, over impure spirits. Now, this brings to mind, in my mind anyway, um, He-Man, a cartoon from the 1980s, which I used to love watching. And so He-Man would take his sword and he'd point it at Cringer, his wimpy, whiny cat, and he'd turn him into Battle Cat. And this less than impressive feline is, suddenly has supernatural powers from He-Man himself, and he also gets this cool armor as part of, the, part of the deal. And instead of curling up on the floor, now this cat stands proud, roaring. He's pretty intimidating because he is Battle Cat. And that's kind of what Jesus does here. He says, okay, you've watched me do all of these miracles. Now, by the power of God Almighty, I give you the power. And now they can do what, what before they'd only seen him do. They remember Crazy Dave over in the Gadarenes, and they've seen how Jesus cast out thousands of demons. Now they can do this, and it is amazing. And, this, and what this shows us is that Jesus was not about creating a movement of peace and niceness. He did not want to uh, make an army of Mr. Rogers. He wanted to make an army of spiritual eviction officers with the power and authority to kick evil spirits out of the lives of people. He wanted to show these spirits that they had no squatter's rights. They had zero squatter's rights. And he was going to use this group of 12, these ordinary folks who just a few verses ago were freaking out in the middle of the sea because of a storm and who were afraid of the power that they saw in Jesus. And now Jesus is giving this power over to them. It's amazing. And they were told to travel light. Verse 8. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money 
in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. I love how specific this is. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. How often do we wait to serve God? How often do we wait until we have the right qualifications, the right skill set, the right the right contents in our spiritual bag of wonderfulness or until we're wearing this kind of spiritual you know belt with all our tools we wait and we wait and we wait but jesus says leave all of that you just have to go you just have to bring a staff some sandals but not an extra shirt don't bring an extra shirt trust me and go now I don't know if you've ever, reached, uh, ever read any Jack Reacher novels or watched any of the films, but Jack Reacher is a drifter who, who's got nothing on him except the clothes on his back, an ATM card, photo ID, and a toothbrush, a fold-up toothbrush. That's all that he has on him. And he goes from place to place living in motels. He buys what he needs. He throws away what he no longer needs. And, and he's just led across the states by his moral compass. It's really inspiring stuff. And that's his life. And as a family man who's rooted here and loves my community and loves my family, I love the Jack Reacher stories. It's exciting. Because even though I love being a family man, I love the idea of that kind of lifestyle where it's just me, an ATM card, and a toothbrush, and the road. Hitchhiking, fantastic. I would love it. At least I think I would until, yeah, I wanted to come home again. You know, you know but I think that, that that's why Jack Reacher is so insanely popular and why Lee Childs has made so much money because there is something really intoxicating about that idea of self-reliance and freedom. But I love that in these verses in Mark chapter 6, that Jesus is even more hardcore and even more minimal than Jack Reacher himself. You see, Jack Reacher has an ATM card, whereas Jesus says, bring no bag and no bread and no money. This is true hardcore life on the road. Jack Reacher brought along a toothbrush, but in Jesus' time, toothbrushes weren't even invented yet. And so I imagine Jesus saying to Jack Reacher, hey, Jack, toothbrushes are for wimps. Me and my trainee eviction officers, we're going to use twigs that we find on the side of the roads, and we're going to scrape the plaque off our teeth. That's how we roll. That's what real men do. It's awesome. But Jesus isn't advocating self-reliance. He's advocating reliance on God. He's saying trust completely in in God. One, one, one commentator says this, that these unique instructions in verse 8 serve as signs of peace, of defenselessness, of trusting God and urgency. Let me say that again. These unique instructions in verse 8 serve as signs of peace, number one, of defenselessness, number two, of trusting God, number three, and of urgency, number four. And I love that. Because when we're on mission for God, we have the freedom to exhibit these four characteristics ourselves, peace, defenselessness, trust in God, 
and urgency. Now, I wonder for you, which of those four characteristics are present in your life right now? Are you experiencing God's peace? Have you reached the point where you've given up all of your own defenses, instead replacing them with trust in Him? And are you living your life with urgency? Or are you so worried about life that you've taken every defensive measure that you can? And maybe if you're wondering why you're still living with a lack of peace, maybe it's because you're not trusting in the Lord. Because, and maybe it's, you know, when your only concern is to live as long and as comfortably as you can, and maybe to see that those that you love are also taken care of, when you live that life, we can fool ourselves into thinking that's the kind of life which God really blesses. It's not. God wants us to live a life of urgency. This urgency to share this hope that Jesus has brought to us, that we will share that with others. This urgency that would lead to a radical and countercultural trust in him that, that, that proves over and over again that God is my only defense. This is the route to true peace. You see, for 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 these folks here, they, they could up and leave at the drop of a hat. They could get out of Dodge within in minutes. They were nimble and prepared. They could turn on a dime. Now, I'm not saying that we should all live out of a suitcase, armed with a passport, ready to go. But I do think that sometimes we can load ourselves down with so much stuff, so many things, so many payment plans, so many mortgages, you know, the debt, so many links and connections that it's literally impossible for us even to start thinking that God might be calling us elsewhere. There's, there's just no way that within the next year or two we can even think of moving because we have so much stuff. And n none of these things are bad things, but it can prevent us from living lives of obedience. Wendy and I know what it's like to rid rid ourselves of everything and to leave the country with just a few suitcases but that's not our life now that's not what we have now we have a house full of stuff we have all you know we we we're, we're living this life but when we did leave to serve on the mission field for four years that we were not allowed to leave with this missions organization until we paid off all of our debt and that process of getting debt free was long and it was, it, was, it was painful because we'd allowed ourselves to reach a place where we were loaded down with all of this stuff and we were unable to follow God's call on our lives. So what is God calling you to? Really, I'm asking you this. What is the call that God has on your life? And ask yourself this. Is there anything that is stopping me from following God in obedience to whatever he calls me to? And these things don't have to be bad, like I've already said, but if they're stopping you from following God in obedience and living by faith, then they can become obstacles to God's doing what he wants to do in you and through you. You can miss the purpose for which God put you here on earth. That's how serious this is. You can miss the purpose for which God put you here on earth. <clears throat> and these things might be 
you know, they might be physical things, a mortgage or a payment plan or an inheritance or a house that's massive, uh, or it might be things that are intangible, a mindset that you're not willing to let go of, a relationship that you can't relinquish, a sin that you're choosing not to let go of. Uh, maybe it's even things like the expectations of members of your family. You see, Paul in Romans, in the context of talking about food and drink, he says this in Romans 14 verse verse uh, 23. He says this, everything which does not come from faith is sin. Everything that does not come from faith is sin. And so according to Paul, in as much as you're not living a life of faith in God, that is the extent to which you're living in sin. And that sin is holding you back from maybe fulfilling God's will for your life. And so I ask you again, what is your peace level? Are you trusting in your own defenses or is your your trusting God? Are you living life with a sense of urgency? Are you traveling light for God's glory? Verse 10, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. You know, Jesus is really, he's saying to his disciples, you should live like I have been living. With the memory of his own townsfolk rejecting him, Jesus says, stay when you're welcome and leave when you're not. After all, Jesus has already shown that if people are not ready for the good news of Jesus, if they're living lives of unbelief, if they're, if, they're, if, they're, if they're rejecting the evidence that God brings to them that he's real and present and powerful and working, then it's unlikely that they're going to change. It's their unbelief that hinders the work of God because God has created a universe where our belief unlocks the power of God in our lives. Sure, God can work outside of our permission. He can work outside of our will, but that's not the universe that he's made. That's not how he generally works. He's, he's, he's ordered things such that he responds to the humble, faithful heart, and he passes by the cynical, self-sufficient heart. Jesus will not go where he's not wanted. He's the servant king. And so, in essence, Jesus is saying to his followers, don't waste your time on those who are not willing to listen. So, if God sent someone to your home, would, if, someone, if God sent someone to your life, would they be welcome? Or would they shake off their dust, the dust of their feet, as a testimony of God against you? Is there room in your heart for the Lord? Verse 12, they went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. A few Moments ago, I said this, that the person who lives a life of unbelief will never know what they're missing. Well, the opposite gloriously is also true, that the person who lives a life of faith knows exactly what they have, and they wouldn't change it for the world. The person who lives a life of faith knows exactly what they have, and they wouldn't change it for the world. Jesus' followers knew what a life lived by faith looked like. They saw the demons flee, and they witnessed sick people getting miraculously well. They were being schooled by the master himself, and they were in this. They, they, they were in for the ride of their life. And so when you pray, 
let your kingdom come, let your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Do you really believe that? Are you willing to count the cost of praying that prayer and actually meaning it? You know, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm kind of tired of living week to week and month to month and year to year and thinking that this is the normal Christian life. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of tired of having my expectations so small. I'm, I'm tired of putting in the hours and fooling myself that God has called me to a life of being nice and respectable and safe, and then I die. Because what I see in this passage is that the nice and respectable and safe people lived in Nazareth. And they missed it. They missed what God was doing, and they didn't even realize it. They just carried on, safe in their little force field of normalness, everything the same, week in, week out, where, where God's blessing and God's power could not reach them or move them. They didn't know what they were missing. But the followers of Jesus and the people in the other towns and villages where Jesus uh, went... They knew the adventure of God's kingdom coming here on earth as it is in heaven. They saw spiritual evictions take place. They, they saw physical restorations. They saw with their own eyes the, the kingdom of the servant king being established. They saw people repent. They saw people turn away from their former life and start following Jesus. They saw cringes becoming, being transformed into battle cats. And as they saw this, they wanted more and more and more. And this life of faith led to nearly every single one of them laying down their lives for the sake of the gospel because it gripped them and it would not let them go. And so I don't know about you, but I want to spend my life being gripped by a narrative that is as big and glorious and hope-filled and trans life-transforming as the narrative of the Son of Man coming not to serve but to be served not, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's what I want my life to be gripped with. The person who lives a life of unbelief will never know what they are missing. The person who lives a life of faith knows exactly what they have, and they wouldn't change it for the world. And so I wonder, as you're sat here, which one are you? And so as the worship band comes up, I want you to allow the, the, the Spirit of God to, to, to speak to your heart as I read Philippians chapter 3 verse 7. Philippians chapter 3 verse 7 says this, but whatever were gains for me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them, them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Verse 10, as Crystal starts playing, verse, verse 10 says this, I want to know Christ 
Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. My brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus.